Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Emmanuel Ricky Padilla talks to T.I. Frazier about his newest book, Faith Arising, a very personal story about his own Christian journey. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Emmanuel Padilla, president of World Outspoken and host of the Mestizo podcast. I am guest hosting today. Uh, usually you hear my voice alongside of Elizabeth Conde Frazier as we talk about the issues facing the migrant church as they transition from first and sec- first generation leaders to second and third generation leaders. Today I have the privilege of interviewing yet another member of the Frazier family. This is my second Frasier, no, third Frasier that I've interviewed. I've interviewed Elizabeth. We've been on the podcast with her daughter. And today I have the honor of interviewing speaker and writer Tim Frasier, who wrote a book that we're going to be talking about today. He's also written some children's books. He is a guest speaker for uh, mostly for youth events. And we're looking forward to talking about his book, Faith Arising. Tim, do you want to tell me more about uh, why you chose to start writing inspirational literature, children's lit, what what motivated that? Thank you for having me. Um, the motivation, it's always been a passion of my heart. So uh, in, in culture in, in general, uh, especially as a Boricua, but also African-American, um, we're storytellers. And being able to share our story is a way of sharing our legacy. Why we do what we do, the stories, uh, lessons learned, but they're really stories about our faith. And the more that we can share our journey and being honest about it, even in the places that are difficult, it becomes an adventure that others can learn from and can choose to evaluate. So I wrote this book partly out of obedience. I knew that my children's book would be a lot more popular. It sells 50 to 100 books a week um, for a first-time author, if you will. That's pretty good. Faith Arising, however, is it's a passion of my heart. It's something that I wanted to share both my story, but also the stages of faith that I believe that are necessary to grow and develop. And so that's really where the, the inspiration developed from. You mentioned a couple of things that are quite interesting there, being Boricua, African-American. You talked about being storytellers as part of your culture. You grew up in a house with two preachers. I got to ask about that. Uh, House of Two Preachers, and then you joined the military. We'll talk about the military in a second. But first, I want to talk about that experience of growing up with two preachers. What is it like growing up with two preacher pastor parents? We're not just any preachers, right? We have Elizabeth Conde Frazier, who is a very passionate preacher, to say the least, but also uh, um, somebody who's immersed in the academic worlds. Um, My father... Um, he's a little bit more incognito and he's soft in his approach, but has always worked with youth. And so he has a way of, of evaluating things from afar. He did a lot with urban ministry and me, well, you know, I, I probably would have made a really good deacon. I fell asleep at every single service, almost caught the altar on fire at least once or twice. Um, you know, the offering plates, they make really good Frisbees. 
So, you know, for me, church <laughs> was like my playground, you know, I was going to be there all day anyway, so long as they have food, bueno, I'm good. Um, so I, what I will say, though, the dinner table, dinner lasted forever, conversations lasted forever. And even as a child, I began to develop really in-depth thoughts about things. And one of the things that's, my mom is very much so the articulate and very dominant in conversation, whereas my father's actions very much so speak louder than his words. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in my book uh, as a particular faith stage is I call it the trunk, the trunk of our faith. Um, some people might refer to it as your pillar. And one of the stories I share is with my father having MS. And MS, which is multiple sclerosis, that affects the nerves. And my father, really, he was struggling with that every day. He was fighting a battle that he would lose every day. And it would be worse, slightly, every day. What inspires you to get up in the morning if you're losing every single day? What inspires you to say, I'm going to try again? Whether it's your immediate challenge, whether it's what's going on with work, your relationships, your interactions, what is going to motivate you to literally fight a losing battle every day? And that question was always in my mind. But also, I was the kid who climbed trees, right? So I'm in a tree one day. And as I'm coming out of the tree, the tree had five branches that reached out. So I always felt like I was in the palm of somebody's hands. And so I, it felt like a safe place um, for myself. I felt like I was literally being held uh, in the palm of a hand. And I remember coming out of that tree and it would always go away. But when I held my father's hand, I found out and realized that that tree lived inside of him. And that was a very distinct moment for me that said, I need to know what this is about. This is why I believe in God. I bring that to light to say, yes, I'm bringing, I was brought up with two very deep thinkers who spent a lot of time at the table, um, but, but also have a lot of energy and joy. But the actions of my father, the silence was a firm pillar of strength for me that when I held that hand, that was that distinct moment of realization. I saw God in my father. And I saw God in my father even when his physical attributes were atrophy. And I think that that's a distinct thing when we recognize what it really means to be connected to the spirit of God. So I'd say I was introduced to the spirit of God very quickly, um, you know, but the things you don't see is the craziness between the, the love of their experience, you know, the bats in the house, the this, the that, you know, and all of a sudden to me, they were, they were just my parents. They weren't pastors. They just, yeah. I just happen to go to their playground every Sunday and stay there forever. That's it. <laughs> I love it. I uh, I try to imagine a life where where I'm sitting at a dinner table with Elizabeth dropping dimes of wisdom and your father doing the same. That is uh, that's an incredible experience, I imagine. But I, I'm sure there's hard parts too. We don't want to be overly romantic. You know, you talked about your dad's MS. Your book is called Faith Arising. You use this metaphor um, of all stages of a tree, really, from seed all the way to bearing fruit. Um, that that anchors the structure of the book. 
Um, and you've made a connection here already between that metaphor of the tree and the trunk of it being like, or really the branches of it being like the hand that you held when you held your father's hand. Uh, one thing that really struck me is at the beginning of the book, the introduction, kind of the first chapter, you raise these questions about what it means to be a man. And I'm wondering if you could you could maybe talk us through, you know, how your notions of what it means to be a man have been shaped by maybe your dad's MS, shaped by your experience in the military, shaped by you being a father now, right? Talk us through some sure. of the ways in which the, the notions of what it means to be a man have, have shifted, changed, or adapted over time. So if we're getting real for a moment, um, with my father having MS and my mother, who uh, can be very domineering, but rightfully so, the dynamics in my home were very non-traditional. My mother was the breadwinner in the household. My dad was unable to work, was unable to communicate the way that he desired. And so early on, there was some confusion between what I was seeing as a man, as a physical dominant structure or whatever your theology was teaching you, to then my mother, who's quite a fighter in her space and wanting to make sure that people recognize the um, the beauty, the strength, and the leadership of women. And so here I am in a non-traditional family trying to identify what it means to be a man. And I was stronger than my dad at, at 13 years old, right? And so it wasn't like I could beat him in that one basketball game and finally have this feeling of, oh, I'm finally accomplishing something physically. Physically, I was a very dominant individual in top 10 in the nation for track and field in high school. Um, you know, obviously, some of the things that I did in the military involved uh, being uh, physically fit. So fit wasn't the answer. Dominance wasn't the answer. How do I recognize what it means to be a man? And I'm seeing all these different expressions and to be frank, a lot of grown-up boys, right? Uh, my friend used to always say, uh, boys make excuses, men make changes. And so I was around a lot of grown-up boys in my military life who claimed to be men, but could get away with living less than what I would say great integrity. <laughs> and we're supposed to be upholding this idea of what it means to be an American citizen and on one hand, we're shaved, we're clean. And on the back end, we're doing things that are that could be questionable. You know, overseas, you kill somebody in the name of, you know, being a soldier over here. That's more murder, right? Two different worlds. Um, so I was always fascinated with when do you actually become a man? You know, it's if, if women have quinceañeras, and in the Jewish tradition, we have bar mitzvahs and ba mitzvahs. In the American tradition, in general, what you know, you're 20 years old, you're still called jovencito when you go to church, right? So when do you become a man? Do you have to get married? Like, what is it? Um, so the development of my faith was how I defined becoming a man, because it recognized a certain level of maturity to invite God into your heart, but also to have a cohesive relationship with God that allows God to inform your decision-making process. 
when you're young, you make decisions out of the zealous and energies of whatever is in the moment, whether that's your physical energy, your, your emotional energy, your intellect. But when you invite God, there's a different level of maturity. And what I came to realize was that's not just being a man once and arriving. It's doing that again and again and again. There's a certain level of cycles of constantly saying, I have now bonded myself with God in such a way that every iteration, every time I make a decision, I know how to invite God in that space. And the maturity of who I am becomes the recognition that I have now taken a hold of what it means to claim my life. And so that's where I started to define myself, but it started with my faith and really understanding what a relationship with God is. I think we say that so often without really understanding the cohesiveness of what that means. Yeah, you've talked about some of the benchmarks. I appreciate you noting, right, that in in certain cultures, there's very clear benchmarks or at least rituals that mark the transition from from child to adult from from boy to man we might say right and it sounds like in in a culture and it's true the u.s doesn't often have those kinds of rituals in a culture that lacks those you you found a way to ground your masculinity in a kind of maturing faith is that right that's correct yeah well i'm interested in this idea because in the book, you talk about uh, several kind of uh, contextual realities, right? Um, things that um, you experienced in terms of physical injury when you were on the the track and field team. You had an injury that kept you off the field, and that that affected your kind of sense of masculinity. Uh, I'm curious, though. There's one element that you've brought up already in this interview. You bring it up briefly in the book, and I wonder if you could press into it a little more. Uh your racialization. I'm curious as to how that might have affected what it meant to be uh, Afrodescendiente on both sides, right? To be to be black from your dad's side, to be black in some respects from your mom's side. How did that shape the way that you started understanding yourself as a man, as a person, as a faith person, right? Can you tell us a little bit more about how racialization uh, impacted some of these things? You know, that's a, that's a good question that being biracial, it's interesting to see how people embrace you or don't embrace you. So uh, I'll, I'll kind of give you a couple different experiences uh, so you can understand how unfamiliar I was with race. When I was in kindergarten, apparently some kids had seen the movies roots and so they decided that they wanted to play this game where they had to catch the slave and I was the slave and they would try to catch me and throw rocks and sticks at me and it wasn't until my mom saw some scars on my back that she even asked a question now you might be shocked and surprised and have a lot of sets of emotions I was in kindergarten I didn't really know anything other than it was a game now as I got older um, it was more the color of my skin than my race, if you will, that intimidated people. And within the African-American culture, they really didn't embrace me much. And I come to think of it based off of 
different things that people said to me that it was because my features were different. My hair wasn't quite the same. My nose wasn't quite the same. My eyebrows weren't quite the same. So I didn't hang out with the quote unquote black kids growing up. Um, I moved from Boston to California and there's a lot more Mexicanos in California. And it's not like Boricuas and Mexicanos just hang out like we're best friends. <laughs> That's true. And, there's some tensions there. And so <laughs> to say the least, I found myself um, without any groups that were embracing me. And so the groups that embraced me were the kids from Iraq, the kids from India, uh, the kids from Kazakhstan, the kids from Afghanistan, the kids from Japan, um, Korea. So third culture Chinese. kids in some ways, huh? So basically Asian or Middle Eastern. And those were the worlds that I began to interact with, um, being an outsider, but being accepted. Now, as I got into the corporate world, again, color intimidated people. And being smart and dark became a threat to people. And I had to figure out how to deal with that. In college, being masculine, strong, intelligent, and Black meant that I was arrogant even if that wasn't my intentions, because everybody looked at the football players, the basketball players, the Terrell Owens, you know, the Ocho Cinco's, whoever you were watching at the time. And there was this flamboyant dominance, but also arrogance associated with it. So then they see somebody else who's young, black, smart, and, you know, confident, and it became arrogance instead of confidence. And it actually hurt me because, in no way was I ever trying to be arrogant. Um, I didn't even wear like a muscle shirt until probably my mid-20s because of how muscular I was. I was afraid that everybody would think that I was showing off or doing it for a particular purpose. And so I, I tried to be extremely conservative, even with a muscle shirt. I wouldn't even go to the beach with, you know, without having long sleeves. And when you're in the military, you wear long sleeves all, all the time anyways. So it was, it was always a sense of, of tension for me because I was being judged before they knew me. And I had to find what I call the great equalizers. And so would you question or would you try to compete with someone who's military? No. You know that they stand for respect, honor, a sense of integrity. You know that there's a certain set of values there. So that became a great equalizer, despite my quote unquote color. Um, going to Calvin College, which is now Calvin University, which is a Dutch school. But in my circles, going to this Christian school became this equalizer. It meant I was safer to interact with. And so I spent years trying to be so intentional about how I interacted with people to make them feel comfortable, safe. Um, even the height of my chair, I would purposely put it lower than the people I was meeting or interacting with so that they were in a place of dominance so they didn't feel intimidated. 
Now, good or bad, that awareness was always there, but it wasn't a race awareness. It was a color awareness because someone was evaluating and making assumptions, but they can't make assumptions and saying, oh, you know, Boricuas are like this, because when you look at me, you can't say I'm Boricua. But then you can't say, oh, black people are like this, because when you look at me, I don't have African-American features. So they didn't know what to do with me and people didn't know how to define me. And that was more uncomfortable for them than having a place to start with, even if it was discriminatory. Yeah. And so they just felt instantly afraid. Tim, let me press into that some because I, I want to tie it back to the maturity of your faith as you talked about it in the book. You just talked about the, the trouble people might have trying to define or understand who you are. Um, you've also talked a little bit here about the kind of confidence and the ways that gets read, right? The the ways that confidence might get read as arrogance, et cetera, et cetera. I imagine that part of writing this book is unveiling some of the things that people don't see. So, so you know, a confident person, well-educated, ex-military, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there's still the rock bottom moments is how you describe it in the book, right? Um, the book lays out quite a few points of pain, right? Um, miscarriages, uh, medical issues, points of uh, bouts of serious mental health kind of struggles, depression, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, was part of laying out those real moments of hardship, was part of that uh, an attempt to say, it's not a, it's not as good or as pretty as you all think it is, or life is not as, as wonderful or as perfect. You know, why press into those moments? Why share them? So, you know, I, I talked about kind of the great equalizers in that motion of um, really, if, if I'm really breaking it down and really thinking through it, I pressed into those moments because one, it helps people to see you to that point. But two, we communicate some of the most beautiful parts of our passion from our pain, if we allow it to. When I talk about people being afraid of me, I had to go to a place of, am I going to communicate with others who are afraid of me out of a spirit of fear or a spirit of love? And so really, when I talk about pain, I'm really telling you my love stories. I'm telling you that this is a young person who, yeah, I might've been intelligent. I might've seemed like I had everything together, but I was struggling to not only just define my faith, but to discover what I'm passionate about. What is my love story? And it's not all pretty. And I want to be honest about that so that other people are invited to be honest about their love story, the, the struggles and the things that they're facing. And that becomes the great equalizer, but more so that becomes the base of our faith. That becomes the base of, oh, I'm not going to spend the next you know, three days telling everybody how different I am from you or trying to stand out or trying to compete when you show the brokenness of your life, you're not competing with people. Someone else isn't going to come up to you and go, oh, I'm more broken than you. I mean, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but the true broken parts of our lives, we don't really share. You know, the victimization part, sure, maybe. But the true broken parts, we don't want to share. 
So if we're not competing about being broken, then what are we doing there? We're choosing to be vulnerable. Are we asking people to love us? Or are we saying this is from where I choose to love you? I choose to love you out of the brokenness of my heart. And that choice of loving somebody else in the brokenness of your heart, that choice is faith. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the expressions and the reason of being so honest about the miscarriages, um, the torn apart relationships, the moments of feeling burdensome from caring and loving and serving others so much to the detriment of yourself. That's really what I was trying to gather at. You know, I know we don't want to get too academic, but when you talk about what is practical theology, what is practical faith? This is the faith that says, hey, I wasn't this person that just was un, unable to be broken. I wasn't some magical situation where I was just stronger than it. This book is saying faith is recognizing not that I just wasn't stronger than it, but it literally broke me. I was homeless. I talk about that briefly. That's a yeah. broken moment. How many people who are homeless come out of homelessness? Maybe they were homeless for a moment. That's a little different than having a habitual problem. I mean, we can go on and on and on and, and try to work through the social challenges in life. What I'm saying is I am that. I see myself in the homeless. I see myself in the people who are broken because I didn't magically get better. I didn't magically say, oh, my faith in God is going to make something great happen. When I'm homeless, broken, hungry, I'm walking down the street and I'm going to pray, God, bring me some food. Will it happen? If my faith doesn't really allow me to believe it. In one moment, I could tell you I had my faith so strong, even in that moment. And food did come. Someone gave me $100 randomly. Hey, God told me to bless you. Boom. And I got some food and I went to Applebee's. Next week, here we go, guys. Nothing. Next day, nothing. Now I'm going three, four, five days, no food. Did God desert me? Did something, did I do something wrong with my faith? You know, some people call that manifestation. Like, oh man, maybe if I just meditate a little harder or I, I got to, you know, turn around and do these three circles and, you know, read this verse. Where's God? Yeah. And so faith really started to become, okay, I need to recognize what God is giving me in the moment. And it may not just be a direct answer to my situation. And so one of the things I talk about in the book was when I was in a moment of despair, I realized that the one thing I did have was time. And then I'm like, well, what am I going to do with that time? And that became a very powerful place because I, I remember hearing people talk all the time. Oh, I don't have enough time to get a better job. I don't have enough time to do X, Y, and Z. Time became the most powerful thing I could ever possess. So the unveiling of the, and thank you for sharing those. I, you mentioned the homelessness, the broken relationships. I mean, there's, there's a lot to your story that you share pretty, pretty openly. Um, and I, and I appreciate you saying that part of that transparency isn't so much to, to maybe 
subvert some of the ways that people might read you as much as it is an expression of faith and love, right? An expression of, of uh, an opening to others, if we might say. You know, you have a son. Uh, how old is your son now? When you wrote the book, he was, I think, three, at least in one of the stories that you laid out. Yeah, so he'll be turning four um, in about two months. So Four in two months. Okay. Well, yeah. so let me ask this question. Uh, I imagine, I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I imagine that at least one person you have in mind when writing this book is your son, as your audience, I mean, right? Eventually, I, I'd imagine you hope that he reads it. Um, what do you hope your son walks away with once they, once he, once he gets the chance to read the book? That's a hard question. Um, yes, my son was on my mind as the audience to this book. I wanted to write all the things I'd be afraid to tell him, all the things I'd be afraid to teach him, all the things I'm afraid to correct him on. Um, I, I remember being in my 20s and there was a moment where I really did feel like I knew better than the people around me. I became a private banker for JP Morgan. It wasn't like I was hurting for cash at the time. And my parents are pastors. They don't know the business world. I go in there, I build relationships. I move a couple hundred million dollars. Everybody's happy. Um, so it wasn't like anybody could really tell me what to do or, or say anything to me because I'm essentially the breadwinner of the generation. So what are you going to tell me? And I imagine if my son is anything like me and has the same emotions and feelings, and I get to a point where, or he gets to a point where he can't learn from me, or he's not teachable from me, he might be teachable from other people, but from me, he's not teachable. At some point, he might want to know more about me. At some point, he might want to know the truth about the things that we don't care to share to the next generation. So I tried to be brave to put in those stories. So that way, even if we never feel comfortable sharing them, that he has a place to go. I know who my father is. I know who my father was. And I knew I know the story of my father's faith. And at some point, you know, when I think about a child, when does your faith go from the faith of my father to the faith of, of me? or the faith of my mother to the faith of me. There's a transition where that takes place. And you see that all the time in stories in the Bible where it's like, you know, the God of Abraham. Well, when did it become the God of Jacob or Isaac or anybody else? It was like there was some type of, in my opinion, we'll just call it biblical drama before God reveals himself. And all of a sudden now it's the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of whomever, but they had to wrestle with something first to define their faith, to then connect with God or mature with God in a different way. And so here, this is my story of how God became the God of T.I. Frazier, Tim Frazier, Timothy Ira Frazier. That's, this is my story of how God became my God, not the God of Alisa de Conde or Ira, my dad. And so he will have that story. I can't take it from him. I can't, you know, sometimes we hinder or prevent our children from having that experience. And so here I know that I'm going to have to let him go in those ways 
And if I can't speak to him and he's brave enough, he knows where to look to find maybe a few answers. Yes and amen. What you said reminds me of um, Dr. Teresa Delgado. She's a Puerto Rican uh, theologian who teaches at St. John's University. I think she's actually a dean there now. Uh, she's She talks a lot about the Puerto Rican diaspora experience and the ways that it's marked more by silence than anything else. She talks about how de eso no se habla, right? We don't talk about those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in her decolonial theology of Puerto Rico, she actually does quite a bit of uncovering of her family's story. She actually tells the story in the book about going to find her biological father, something that Mm. her mother had discouraged her from doing. And it seems to me that what you're describing is an attempt to resist silence, to say, I will tell this part of the story. And maybe for my son and others who read the book, it's an opportunity to invite them out of silence and into faith and love. 100% yes. And and a hundred percent agree with that. You know, my my mother has her own versions of understanding those silences, um, and and in those uh, in that search, well, there's a search for identity, right? Our identity in Christ, and and so that's that's why I want to fill that silence because I think that we, if we're not in tune to the right voices, who knows where the wind will blow. Um. And if I am ever in a place where I can't speak or share, it's there. And so that's why it's an encouragement for people to embrace their identity and to hear the identity of who they can be, should they choose to, as a, as a legacy, not just for my son, but for all. To um, There's a reason why after each chapter, there's questions. They're designed so that you can think through them but also it's it's meant to be shared it's meant to be interacted with it's saying hey this this book is it's a short book it's 90 pages it's an hour and 54 minutes of an audio book you sit down with someone and you can actually interact and do i agree with him what did he go off the deep end here what inklings can i gain from this um i didn't write it to get five stars you know from some reviewer I wrote it to challenge people, not just inspire them. I want it to be that thorn on their side and say, I'm going to challenge you. It's not popular to challenge people. Inspire them? Yeah. That lasts how long? Five minutes? Who's the last person that inspired you last year? Five years ago? Ten years ago? We, We have to search for new inspiration. But when you say, hey, who's the last person who challenged me? Now you're talking about mentors. You're talking about coaches. I'm looking to challenge people and saying, yes, you will have moments of inspiration, but I'm really saying, can you learn and be challenged from what I wrote? Not, do you give a five-star review, but can you be challenged by what I wrote? And if the answer is yes, then I then I have communicated and done the job that I sought out to do. Yeah. Those discussion questions, let's talk about those for a minute, because I also thought that was a, a peculiar part of the structure of the book in a good way. It, it invites, it assumes that there would be discussions. I'm curious, Faith Arising, is it for parents to share with their children? Is it for children to share with their parents? You write and talk about on your website that you uh, primarily speak to youth. Is it for youth? Is it for adults? Is it for both? Talk to me a little bit more about how you imagine those discussions unfolding. Sure. Well, 
I think I talk on the website about speaking to youth because that's been the majority of my experiences that I've been invited to so far. I would say this book is is for everybody, uh, whether you're 100 years old or, or you know, in, in your teens. Um, I think it's a rather mature book for teenagers where they might not grasp everything, but I think that there would be value there. I wanted people to interact with the book to challenge themselves and so I had an editor that made the suggestion of adding the questions so that you would challenge yourself and do the introspective work that it takes when I married my wife one of the most attractive things about her was that she had done the work in her life she wasn't potential she was and I really loved that because I could see that she had done the work if I'm asking to challenge people, I'm asking you to do the work. And so I needed to give people questions on how they were going to frame the work that they need to do in their lives. So many times we hear, oh, I got to work on myself. Okay, well, how are you going to do that? What questions are you going to ask? What, what one millimeter, two millimeter shift are you going to make in your life to do, quote unquote, the work? So it really wasn't meant to be a mentor-mentee relationship, father-son, mom, dad. This was, hey, I'm reading this for me, and I want to challenge myself by talking to others because that's the way that we challenge ourselves. That's the way we do it in our community. Um, but yeah, it was, that's, that's what it's about, doing the work for me. Well, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate the interest in in unveiling or being transparent about your story. And I'm grateful for the, um, to your point, the practical theology you invite people to do in their self-reflection and growth as they reflect on and do the introspective work about their own lives and stories and some of the messier parts about that. As a Puerto Rican, I always appreciate when another Puerto Rican breaks silence to share about their family story um, and share about their own pains, decisions they've made. Uh, that's always to me uh, uh, an act of ministry that bears witness to God's work. And so let me say thank you for Faith Arising and for the work that you do. Uh, I very much appreciate it. And I'm glad that HTI and Open Plaza was able to tell part of this story because we know there are a lot of academics who read Open Plaza or, and listen to the podcast. And it's always fun to have them go, wait, wait, wait. There's stuff that happens on the ground that, here that we need to think about. If there's one more word you want to give those academics, those listeners, not all of them are academics, but most of them or a good bit of them are. If there's a word you wanted to give them, what would that word be? The very second word, which is faith arising, not rising, but arising. Rising means to get up. Arise means to emerge into something greater. So I challenge everyone to arise, emerge in something greater and a greater version of you. That's it. Thank you, brother. Again, thanks for everyone for joining us. This has been the HTI Open Blasa. You can find the podcast on all the major podcast platforms and on the website. It's been an honor once again to host HTI. We will see each other again. Bendiciones. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. 
Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.